Well, welcome. Good to have you here at River City. Uh, my name is Brandon. If you are new or visiting, just wanted to say a special welcome to you. Good to have you guys here this morning. As always, I'm looking forward to studying God's Word as, as we uh, do it every time as we gather together here. Uh, this morning, we are on the front end of a series going through the book of Colossians. And in case any of you are new or, God forbid, you missed a week of church... Uh, We'll do a quick review of where we've been so far uh, so we can uh, just catch it all up as we head into our study this morning. Again, uh, Colossians is a book written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church in the city of Colossae. It would be modern-day Turkey area. And what's happening is that Paul's writing this book. It's very near the end of his life. He's in prison. He's awaiting trial in Rome. And and, uh, the main reason that Paul is writing to this young church His chief concern was that they were in danger of succumbing to religious syncretism. Religious syncretism is the the merging or the blending of lots of different religious ideologies or thinkings. It's when they come together to become something new. You see, the air that the Colossians were facing is the same thing that threatens us today. In this way, the spirit of the age hasn't really changed that much in 2,000 years. I quoted Warren Wearsby last week when I said, the false teachers of Colossae, like the false teachers of our own day, would not deny the importance of Jesus. They would simply dethrone him, giving him prominence, but not preeminence. Jesus Christ was what was but just one of many emanations to proceed from God and through which men could reach God. You see, the Colossians weren't about to reject Jesus. Instead, they were just going to simply add to him. Jesus might be a way to get to God, but he he wasn't the way. And the most serious part about the issue that Paul is writing to this church is that they didn't realize that adding to Jesus was a big deal. They didn't understand the, the seriousness of what they were doing or what they were being tempted to do. You see, they didn't realize that to say that Jesus was just one of many ways to God was fundamentally changing the gospel at its core. And it was removing all of Jesus' power to actually be their Savior in the first place. You see, Jesus can't be one of many options or one of many paths to right relationship with God. If Jesus has importance but not supremacy, the gospel is just a worthless lie. To say that he is one of many ways to God is to say that he is not supreme. And to say that he is not supreme removes all of his ability to save. Last week we said it's because Jesus is the supreme Lord of everything that he is the sufficient Savior we need. His supremacy is directly linked with his sufficiency. If he's not supreme, he's not sufficient. He's either supreme over all things and so able to be the Savior of all things. Or he's not supreme over everything, and he can't save anything. See, Jesus is either the only Savior or not a Savior at all. There is no way he can be one of many options. And so Paul writes to the Colossians in this opening chapter, and he says, you have to know Jesus. And he says, a robust understanding of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus, that's going to be the thing that safeguards you from religious syncretism. That's going to be the thing that keeps uh, your heart steadfast on the gospel. You have to know who Jesus is and you have to embrace that he is the supreme Lord of everything. 
What we'll see this morning is that the supremacy of Jesus isn't just good news that saves us. It's good news that changes us as well. See, in our passage this morning, Paul is going to lay out the supremacy of Jesus and how the supremacy of Jesus has changed the purpose of his life and how it should change the purpose of all those who would call on Jesus as king. You see, the good news about the supremacy of Jesus, it frees us from slavery to sin and slavery to our own passions and our own desires. And instead, it frees us to live for God, to be driven by his passions, to be driven by his desires. As we study this morning, what we're going to see is Paul's heart. We're going to see his passion. We're going to see the driving force of his life, the thing that motivates everything that he does, the thing that undergirds all that he says, the things that motivate his heart for this church and the, and the words that he has to say to them in this letter. What I want us to see as we study the end of chapter 2, the beginning of, or the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2 here is that because it's only Jesus that saves, the driving force of our lives should be that everyone would know him, no matter the cost. Because Jesus is the only way to God, the driving force of our lives should be that everyone would know him, no matter the cost. So let's begin in prayer as we ask God to help us understand his word rightly and ask him just to cause the gospel to change our hearts and motivate all that we do, and we'll go from there this morning. So let's pray. God, we just, we just come forward. We just need you to help us understand your word rightly. God, we need you to cause the gospel to change us so that the things that matter most to us, the things that drive our decisions and our words and our actions and the all that we do, Jesus, we need you to be the one that changes that about us. And so we ask that as we see the good news about how your supremacy changes who we are, God, we just pray that that would change us. And God, we ask that you would do that for our good and for your great glory. God, just as I preach, as I teach this morning, God, I just ask that you'd fill me with your spirit so that what I would have to say would be from you and for our good. God, we just want to submit ourselves under the authority of your word that it might be good for us and and glorifying to you. We pray these things in your good name, God. Amen. Amen. Well, if you don't have a Bible with you, there is a shelf of Bibles kind of in the back corner. You are welcome to take one of those. Um, but tonight, or this morning, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, going through chapter 2, verse 5. Paul here writing, he says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission that God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed in the Lord's, to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one that we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of the complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom all the, are hidden all of the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. 
I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in the body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. You see, it's because only Jesus saves. The driving force of our lives is that everyone would know him, no matter the cost. What we see this morning is an apostle's passion Our passage opens up with this rather challenging few verses, and if you're following along closely, you're thinking to yourself, whoa, 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 Paul. Slow your roll here, buddy. You just got done talking about the supremacy of Jesus, how he's everything, and now you're saying he's lacking something? Well, let's make sense of uh, what Paul is talking about here when he says that what is lacking in Christ's suffering. And to answer that question, we we need to ask two questions. We need to say, one, how is Paul sharing in the sufferings of the Messiah or the afflictions of Christ without taking away from the supremacy of Jesus? And we just need to ask, why is he rejoicing in that? So what is the suffering that Paul is rejoicing in? That's the the very first part we we got to get to. Paul's call was to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And God himself had forewarned the apostle Paul of that this calling would invariably involve sacrifice and suffering. As one commentator notes, Paul suffered in two ways. He suffered the attacks of those who he sought to reach with the gospel, and he suffered at the hands of the Jews who sought to stop the advancing of the gospel. You see, the message that Paul preached was that Gentiles were included in the work of God, and this message offended many Jews who didn't want the gospel going to the Gentiles, and it offended many Gentiles who didn't want the implications of the gospel changing their lives in any way, shape, or form. And so Paul suffered on all sides, as he sought to live out his calling to proclaim the good news about the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives some examples of what kind of suffering his suffering has looked like for the gospel. He says, beginning in verse 24, he says, Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in open sea. I have been constantly on the moon. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews in danger from Gentiles, in danger from the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold. I have been naked. And besides everything, I face daily the pressures of my heart, my concern for all of the churches. And you're thinking, Paul, how are you rejoicing in that? That sounds terrible. That brings us to verse 24, where Paul says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. What, what is Paul talking about there? In, um, to understand this, I think it's just you need some context. In, in Jewish literature, especially in, in Jewish literature that focused on the end times, there was this belief that there was a set amount of suffering and pain that would occur before the Messiah would come and would make all things new. There was only so much that God would allow before he would return and fix everything. And so when they speak of that kind of coming, of that kind of coming suffering in apocalyptic literature in Judaism, it's called the woes of the Messiah, which is synonymous with this term, the afflictions of Christ. And that's the, the, the wording that Paul uses in our text this morning. And so what Paul is saying is that the reason he's rejoicing in his sufferings is because he, in, in suffering, he's able to take on some of the suffering that remains, some of the woes of the Messiah that remain, and, and bring the day in which God would bring all things new 
bringing it that much closer. What Paul is saying is I'm absorbing some of that pain. I'm absorbing some of that hurt. I'm absorbing some of that suffering for you, for your good, so that one day you might, we might experience the goodness of God altogether. He's saying I'm able to suck up some of that hurt, some of that pain, so it's, that it's not all bearing down on you in Colossae. And he says that's why I'm rejoicing. I think it's here that we learn something really important, you see. There is joy in sacrifice. There is even joy in suffering when it is for an eternal purpose. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory, which is beyond compare. As we look to the things that are seen, but as we look to the things that are unseen rather than the things that are seen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, Paul is saying, I'm not living for here. I'm not living for now. I'm living with the, with the end in mind. That's what drives everything I do because I know Jesus and I want you to know him and he is the one that saves. It's him that restores. It's him that makes all things new. You see, living in light of eternity has changed everything about the Apostle Paul. Verse 25 through 27, he shows us how that eternal perspective drives everything that he does. In verse 25, he says, I've been commissioned by God to present to you the word of God in its fullness, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone, because He is living for eternity, not the present, because he's living for Jesus, the only one who can save and secure his eternal home. The driving force of Paul's life is that everyone would know Jesus. That's the thing that motivates everything he's doing. He tells them he wants them to know Jesus. He wants them to know Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you literally translates it, it means Christ among you, Christ among the Gentiles. The passage speaks to the blessing of Christ available to people who are not ethnically Jewish because Christ was actually among them. The gospel was for everyone, not just for the Jews. And we think, yeah, duh, of course. But to the, this is radical thinking to the people Paul is writing to. Paul says Christ isn't just among you. He says Christ is the hope of glory. The expression means that Christ was, the, was their hope of receiving and participating in glory. Because of what he did, his death and his resurrection, the Gentiles could expect to share in his glory. Paul says the hope that you have, the hope of enjoying the goodness and the glory of God, that is in Jesus. And it's him in you. That's the hope that you have. Gentiles and Jews both exclusively rely on him for salvation. Verse 29, Paul goes on, he says, For this I toil and struggle with every ounce of energy that God is giving me. That's why I'm willing to endure all things. and keep doing it over and over and again and again and again. He says, because I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know him more than anything else, Paul wants the Colossians that they, would, that they would know him. 
That they wouldn't just know about him, but that they would know him. They would know Jesus, the mystery hidden for all ages. That they would know Jesus in whom all wisdom and all knowledge in the universe is found. That they would know him. That they would know just him. See, the driving force of Paul's life was that everyone would know Jesus, no matter the cost. He wants them not just to know about him. He wants them to know and believe and trust in him. It drives everything that he does. And before we too quickly move on past the implications of this truth for ourselves, let, us, let me remind us, Paul overly, Paul abundantly, he, he often calls us to imitate him. And so Paul's passion for people to know Jesus should be the passion of all followers of Jesus, not just special Christians, not just apostles, not just people who have special giftings. That should be the passion of all followers of Jesus, of all people who would call Jesus king. The driving force of our lives, of all who call Jesus king, should be that everyone would know Jesus. So what does that look like in our lives? If that was really the thing that drove our actions and our attitudes and our behaviors, what would it look like? And what I want to do this morning is just share a few stories with you guys about what that has looked like. And before I share some, what I just want to reiterate, what I want to be clear about, is that the point of these stories is not to like encourage you to go find some place to suffer for Jesus. But the point of the stories is to see what's driving the choices that people make. The thing that causes them to do what, they, what they're doing. It's not about the results. It's not about what is in the end. It's about the heart. It's about what drives us. I know many of you uh, have heard this story before, but I think often I think about uh, my friend Andy as a senior. Andy was a leader in InterVarsity, and he was trying to reach out to freshmen on campus. At the time, he was living on campus in an apartment by himself, but he realized that he was missing a lot of opportunities to build relationships and to share his faith because he didn't live on campus close to the people that he was trying to reach. And so Andy, as a senior, moved back into the residence halls, not into the nice new ones, into the ones that were renovated, no, into the ones that were farthest away from everything, the dreaded Pickard Hall. It wasn't cheaper than his apartment. It wasn't nicer than his apartment. It wasn't better than his apartment in any way except for one thing. It was way better for reaching people with the gospel. There were lots of ways that Andy chose to sacrifice because the thing that was driving him was that people would know Jesus. Andy and his wife made a similar choice again when they chose to leave really good uh, jobs in the Twin Cities to move here to Dubuque to help us start this church. Why? Because the mission of people knowing and loving and following Jesus, that's the thing that's driving what they're doing. My in-laws are some of the most generous people that I've ever met. They give far more than 10% of their income away. It wouldn't surprise me at all to find out that their giving was closer to a third than a tenth. They are not wealthy people. They do not live extravagant lives. They do not have lots of excess. Nor are they trying to earn something from God. No, they give generously and they give sacrificially because the driving force of their lives is that people would know Jesus. To that end, they give generously to their own church and to this church and to many missionaries all around the world. And their commitment to people coming to know and follow Jesus changes how they use their money. 
Hannah's mom, I love, she always says it this way. She says, I love investing in eternal things. The return on that investment is always good. I think of uh, Jim Elliott, who was a missionary in the 1950s into the peoples in South America. Jim's desire was to serve God by taking the gospel to unreached people of the world. That began to grow in him while he was in college. In addition to his hope one day to travel to foreign countries and to share Christ with the unchurched of the world, he also felt the need to share it with people in the United States. He often felt ineffective in his work, though. Once he wrote, no fruit yet. Why, is it, why am I so unproductive? I cannot recall leading more than one or two into the kingdom. In February 1952, Jim finally left America and traveled to Ecuador. It was Jim's desire to be able to reach the Alca tribe that lived deep in the jungles of Ecuador. They had had little contact with the outside world, but they were known to be very violent. Jim's heart for this would take years. Finally, almost five years later in 1956, Jim and four others began to search by plane in the hopes of finding a way to contact the Alca. They found a sandbar in the middle of a river that worked as a landing strip for their plane. And that's where they made first encounter with the Alka. They were elated to finally be able to attempt to share the gospel and the love of Jesus with this people. And after their first meeting, one of the tribe lied to the, uh, the rest of the tribe about the intentions of these men, which led the Alka warriors to plan an attack for when the missionaries would return again. When they returned, they were surprised by ten members of the tribe who massacred these missionaries. The five missionaries had guns with them. They didn't use their guns to fight back the Indians. When the Alka men came towards them with spears, they didn't shoot back with their guns. They knew that if they would shoot these men, that they they might be able to save their own lives, but they would never be able to proclaim the good news of the gospel to these people. And so they chose to let themselves be killed so that the Alka Indians might have another chance to hear the good news about the gospel. In his journal entry in October 28th of 1949, it expresses Jim's heart and echoes the truths we see in Luke 9:24. Jim wrote, "He is no fool. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose." Jim's short life was driven by the desire that everyone would know Jesus. And while it might not seem like his life accomplished very much, his sacrifice did much for the kingdom of God. Not only did the Alcas learn the forgiveness and the love of the gospel through the missionaries that would come a year later and be able to preach the good news of the gospel to these people, but many other people all over the world decided to serve the Lord as foreign missionaries after they heard of Jim's story. You see, people coming to know and love and follow Jesus is the thing that drove his life. For Hannah, my wife, Platteville was the town of her dreams. She knew all the streets. She could get around easily. There was never any traffic. That's where she wanted to live for the rest of her life. God called us here to move to Dubuque. And so she let go of that and embraced the city life. And for some of you, thinking about Dubuque as the city life is kind of a humorous joke, right? But for her, it's a big deal. 
Furthermore, Hannah often takes on lots of extra things and single parents so I can go to various trainings or, or various seminars to learn better how to proclaim Jesus to you. It's really hard to be a single mom, even if it's for a few nights. It's really tough to do that. These things are sacrifices. These things are not better or easier. But she does those because the thing that drives her life is that people would know Jesus. She longs for that to happen. If that means her leaving the city that she would love to move to Dubuque to love a new city, then she would say yes to that. If that means doing something difficult so that I can go and learn and train or be with people that don't know Jesus yet, then she gladly does those things. See, the point of these stories is not that you should go look for a way to sacrifice and to suffer for Jesus, but rather is that the point of our lives, if driven by the advancing of the gospel, will inevitably lead to some suffering. It will inevitably lead to some sacrifice. We're going to be led down paths that will require us to lay down our time and our talents and our treasure so that people would know Jesus. And Paul's saying there is joy in that. There is joy in suffering so that people might know Jesus. There is joy in it, even though it hurts, even though it is hard. There are lots of ways that that might change the way that we live. Maybe for you it just as, it starts as simple as just trying to be intentional about staying a few minutes after work every day to talk with your coworkers, or maybe inviting your coworkers or your neighbors into your home for dinner. Maybe it looks like throwing parties for the people that you're trying to get to know, not just the people you already enjoy being with. Maybe that looks like you beginning to or, or thinking about giving generously to the mission of making disciples, whether that's through the local church or the global church or both of those things. There are lots of different ways that the pursuit of people knowing Jesus changes our lives. And the question is, how is the way that you use your time and your talent and your treasure, how does that reveal the driving force of your life? How does the way that you spend your time reveal the thing that matters most to you? How does the way you spend your money reveal the thing that matters most to you? How does the way you use the gifts that God has given you and the skills that he's given you and the things that he's blessed you with, how does the way you use those things reveal what drives your life? Does it reveal that Jesus is king and that the mission of people knowing the one who has saved you and can save them, does it reveal that he is first? Does it reveal that he matters most? Does it reveal that he is the one at the wheel of the decisions of your life, not just of what you say, but of all that you do? Or does it reveal that something else is in the place of preeminence, the place of what matters most? Paul says, when the driving force of our life is that people might know Jesus, it's not easier. It's not like, like it, it's, it's not just better in a worldly sense. He says it's better in an eternal sense. Paul reminds us throughout the letter of Colossians about why it's worth it. Why is giving sacrificially, generously of your time and your talent, of your treasure, why is that so worth it, Paul Chapter Just a few verses ago, in verse 21, he highlights this. He says, once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in, because of your evil behavior, but now God has reconciled you in Christ. It's his 
body, his death, that enables you to present it before God without blemish and free from accusation. Paul says the gospel motivates all we do. That's why it's worth it. We were God's enemies, but now by grace through faith, we've become his beloved sons and daughters. See, the gospel motivates all that we do. It's not about duty. It's not about obligation. I just want to be clear. Sacrifice and suffering is not the indicator of whether or not you are a good Christian. I just want to be abundantly clear. Sacrifice and suffering is not the indicator of whether or not you are a good Christian. You don't get more points with God if you suffer for him. There is no scale in which God is like, ooh, this person suffered more or less. It, it, that's not the point. But sacrifice and suffering is going to happen if the driving force of your life is that people would know Jesus. It is a natural outworking of that desire. Likewise, the gospel informs our tone and our posture as we proclaim the gospel. As I thought about last week, I just felt like I was, I just prayed about my sermon last week, and I just felt like God was just bringing up in my heart that although what I said was true and right and good, the tone in which I said it might not have been the most helpful. You see, the supremacy of Jesus is not just, it's not just something that is true. The supremacy of Jesus is good news. It's not something we use to like beat people over the head with. It's something that we hold out and that we offer as, a, as something better, as an invitation of what is good. We don't use the supremacy of Jesus to condemn those who don't yet embrace it. We use it to offer them a freedom and a new life under God's good kingly rule. And the good news about the gospel, the message of Jesus' supremacy, it, it, it won't always be received well. But when it's not, that should break our hearts. That, sh- that should tear us up inside. <laughs> Not because our identity is wrapped up in how people respond, but because what we want more than anything is that people would know him. What drives us is that people would receive him, that they wouldn't just hear about him, but that they would really receive him. We want to be careful about how we proclaim Jesus. We want to be careful about our tone and our posture. That doesn't change that what we say about Jesus, but it does change how we say it because we don't want our zeal or our tone or our methods to be the thing that keeps people from hearing about Jesus. You see, Jesus is the one we proclaim. He is the one whom we live for. He is the one who has given everything for us. And so we give everything for him. That people might come to know and love and follow and serve him. Living in light of the supremacy of Jesus for his glory through the mission of making disciples, it will be costly in many different ways. But the good news that the New Testament proclaims over and over is that it's always worth it. It's always worth it. Sometimes I think in my own heart, I'm tempted to, I'm tempted to, uh, to wrestle with whether doing difficult things for Jesus is worth it based on the fruit, based on the results of what happens. And I feel like over the course of this last year, one of the things that God just kept just graciously revealing to my heart is that 
is that it doesn't matter what the results are. It's always worth it to proclaim Jesus. It's always worth it to serve him because he is always worth proclaiming. He is always worth He's always worth living for. He's always worth giving everything for, no matter how people respond to that. And so what that does is that Paul, Paul was rejected all the time with the good news about the gospel. But he continued to pursue it because what was worth it was not just people's response. What was worth it is that Jesus was king. It was worth obeying him. It was worth serving him. It was worth sacrificing for him. It was worth living for him. And it was worth it because Jesus came for Paul. And he came for me. And he came for you. You see, that's what we remember. That's what we celebrate every week when we take communion. We celebrate with the bread that Jesus' body was broken for us as he lived the life that we should have lived. And we celebrate with the drink that Jesus' blood was shed for us as he died the death that we should have died, that our sinful rebellion deserved. What we celebrate is that all that was needed for our salvation, Jesus accomplished for us. By faith, we lay hold of God's unmerited and his all-sufficient grace. And we are reminded that Jesus is not just our Savior, but he is the king we live for every day. Communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him. Only receiving his grace by faith in Christ does that. Instead, communion is a chance. It's a chance for us to remember It's a chance for us to worship God, to thank him for all that he's done, and to, again, submit our lives under his good authority and under his kingly rule. Every church does communion a little bit differently. At River City, during our time of musical worship at the end, you you go up and you dip the bread. There are two stations in either side of the back of the room, and you just dip the bread in the juice. No one's going to dismiss you. You go whenever you are ready because communion is between you and the Lord. And I would just invite you, as you go and you take communion, ask God to graciously reveal to you the driving passions of your life. Ask him to reveal to your heart. Sometimes we can't even see the things that drive who we are. Sometimes it's the pursuit of someone or something. Sometimes we live for the approval of others. Sometimes the thing that drives our our lives is that we might have power over others or power over situations. Sometimes it's comfort that drives the things in our lives. We just want to be comfortable. We just want things to be easy. Jesus said there's only one thing worth living for. There's only one thing that gives life as we live for it, and it's him. That leads us to live so that people would know him because we've come to know him. So as you take communion, ask God to graciously show you what are the things that drive the passions of your life. Ask him to change your heart so that the mission of everyone knowing him, the mission of making disciples would be the thing that actually drives what you do. Ask him to empower you to do it. Paul says, I do this not with my own strength, but with the strength that God gives me. And ask him to remind you about the good news of the gospel, which makes any cost worth it.
confess to him the things that you're tempted to put your hope in instead of, or addition to him, the things that you're tempted to live for instead of him. And ask him to fill you with a passion that overflows out of the gospel into your life so that people would know Jesus. Let's pray. God, we live for you because you came for us. God, you are the good and gracious king of the universe. God, and we long that people might enjoy your supremacy, that they might live in light of the good news about who you are and all that you've done, Jesus. God, we just recognize that like, we don't have the power to change people's hearts. We don't have the power to like, make the gospel good news to people, but we pray that, God, you might graciously use us so that we would be proclaimers of that message. God, graciously correct and restore us when we are living for other things that matter most. God, graciously correct us when our tone and our posture in the way that we proclaim you is not right or healthy or good. God, keep us, cause us to remember that any cost is worth it for you because you are always worth giving everything for. God, I pray that you would give us joy as we live for you. And it's, God, the gospel brings joy, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of sacrifice, because you bring joy. We long to know you. We long that our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers would know you. God, we ask that you use this church for that end. In your good and gracious name, God. Amen.